Welcome to When God Calls, a show about humankind being kind to humans. I am your host, Michael McCaskill. We are all called into service by God. The example we are given to follow is Jesus Christ, who came to serve and not be served. I am finishing up a course in the Methodist Church called Your Ministry of Leading Worship. It is centered around the roles of laity in the worship service. This course has changed the way I view serving and has given me a greater respect for the roles both clergy and laity play in the worship service. We're here with Nick Hughes today. He's my pastor from the Bluntstown United Methodist Church, and he's kindly agreed to, to take an interview with me regarding laity in the, Methodist, in the Methodist denomination. Welcome, Nick. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me today. So, Nick, you joined the Methodist Church from the Baptist denomination. How has your experience as a Baptist shaped your views of laity participating in the worship service? One of the things that informed my understanding of laity early on was a sacred doctrine that Baptists hold along with most of your major Protestant denominations, and that's something called the priesthood of all believers. Now, the priesthood of all believers, uh, Luther played a, an instrumental part of, of highlighting this during the Protestant Reformation. It's a sacred doctrine that we hold that has twofold implications. One of them is this. A priest has access to God. Uh, this is an affirmation of Scripture where Paul says, First uh, Timothy uh, 2.5, I believe, there uh, is uh, one mediator between God and man, and that man is Christ Jesus. So we all have access to God through our high priest, who is Jesus Christ. And so I can go to God in prayer about anything in my life, and you can go to God about anything in your life. We can pray for one another. That's, that's, that's the role of a priest, that role of, of access towards God. And we all have that. And so as a, as a Baptist Christian, I learned that uh, um, anybody can have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and that uh, that relationship with God was essential for salvation. That's what, what God desired in sending Jesus was so that we could know God personally. But the second implication that that has is in terms of our responsibility toward each other. Not only our access to God, but our responsibility as Christians toward each other. Because I have access to God, that means I have a caring ministry. I am to care for you. So if you come to me with a pressing concern in your life, and I'm a Christian, I bring that concern to God on your behalf as an intercessor. Not as a mediator, but as an intercessor. And so that's my responsibility, to care for you, uh, to care for everyone in the church. So that moves us from this idea of pastoral care, where it's the preacher's job to care for the congregation, to congregational care, where we see each other as all of us, priests before God, and we have a responsibility and Christian obligation to care for each other and to be there for each other, to bear one another's burdens, to rejoice with each other when we rejoice, to cry with those who cry, but most of all, to lift each other up to the Father. That provokes a lot of thoughts in my head. Uh, certainly when I became, uh, when I started trying to get into uh, better ministry in the Methodist Church, I started classes uh, to become a lay speaker. But a lot of those classes are revolving around the fact that we're all here for each other and that, that we need to make sure that we are paying attention to each other, helping each other out. And that speaks right to uh, what you're telling us today. I'm going to switch gears just a little bit. How important do you think the scripture reading is in a worship service? 
Oh, that's another great question, Mike. I think uh, scripture reading is primary. You know, I took a class uh, not too long ago myself uh, through one of our seminaries on the public reading of scripture. And when I uh, signed up for that class, I didn't know well, kind of what to expect. Uh, but that was the gist of the course. For one week, we met in a classroom, a group of about nine of us, and we read scripture. Scripture is primary in our theology. You know, we talk about uh, uh, what Albert Outler uh, coined the Wesleyan quadrilateral. We do theology as Methodists through scripture, reason, tradition, and experience. Scripture is primary. Scripture informs our understanding of who God is. It tells us the uh, story of redemption through Scripture. Uh, it tells us the story of Jesus and Him coming to earth, the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. Um, and uh, Scripture tells us about all things that pertain to our faith and practice. It is our primary authority for doing church and for what we believe about uh, God. So if we have uh, any teaching or any doctrine that runs contrary to that of the nature of Scripture, uh, it, it's out of sync with what we would know as biblical orthodoxy. Uh, scripture needs to be read in every single service. Because Scripture is the inspired Word of God, uh, it, you know, I love this story about uh, uh, Sir Walter Scott. Uh, as Sir Walter uh, Scott lay dying, he asked Lockhart to read to him. And he said, from what book? And the response he got was, there is but one book. And that's how we are as, we as a people are as Methodists. We have many books. But ultimately, Wesley was a man of the book, the Bible. And that's who we are as Methodists. Um, somebody said, uh, we read books and the Bible reads us. And, uh, and that's a great statement. Uh, when I go to Scripture, I see myself in the pages. And I see God at work in my life. And God speaks to me through Scripture. And so, because this is a sacred book, unlike any other, it is inspired by God Himself. The Holy Spirit inspired it through ordinary common writers. Uh, it is primary in worship. This is how we hear from God. When the Word of God is read, we are hearing from God Himself. And so, uh, uh, when I preach, it's my goal that that my sermons be Bible-based from Scripture. I don't want to add to Scripture. I don't want to impose my message or my teaching upon the scripture, but rather I want to say this is what the Bible says, and uh, and then this is how we apply it to our lives. But I can't do that if I don't read scripture. And so and I think it's imperative. And back to your first question with laity, I think it's important to have laity read the Bible in the service. I think this is a great way for us to hear from another voice. I think that uh, as a church, uh, we can do a better job at placing emphasis on the reading of Scripture in terms of practicing it, rehearsing it. Uh, it is performance in the positive sense of that term. Um, because when we read Scripture, we interpret it. Uh, I, I was talking to somebody uh, just recently about the story of uh, David in the Old Testament. And you know David, um, he, he had this significant moral failure with Bathsheba. And Nathan, the prophet of God, comes to him and he confronts him about it. The old King James says, Thou art the man. And we like to read that victoriously. Um, but as a professor pointed out to me, what if that was not how it happened? What if Nathan is brokenhearted over his king's moral fall? What if with tears in his eyes he approached the king and whispered in his ear, You 
are the man. You see how reading those two verses, that same verse, two different ways, changes the meaning. And so I think it's, it's primary in worship. And I think that uh, how we read uh, Scripture matters. We need to pay attention to the context of what we're reading and try to put ourselves into the story. And, and, and doing so in a good way, in a healthy way, will help inform the congregation of, of, uh, of what's happening, but also engage them in worship so they feel what's being said. So we tend to uh, bring ourselves to the Word. And we all have different lives. You've gone through different things in your life, and you've certainly gone through a lot of things to get to the point you are today. Uh, so have I. But doing that, that we bring something different to the Scriptures when we read them from different people. Uh, pastors, uh, you can have different pastors read the same verse and it comes across differently because of where they've been and how they've gotten there. Laity is the same way. Everyone's a little different. We're all created a little different. That's a great thing because if everybody was like Michael McCaskill, it'd be a boring world. We all bring something to that. We don't change the scripture, but it's how it's perceived and how it's given back to the people through our reading. God is speaking through us based on where we've come from. And I think that's one of the reasons having laity be more participative in the, the service that brings more of a diverse group of people together with different backgrounds to make that service, that worship of our God, much better. Absolutely, Mike. Uh, I read a book uh, a while back by uh, the great uh, church historian Justo Gonzalez, and it was on reading the Bible through Hispanic eyes. And uh, Dr. Gonzalez uh, is a Hispanic American, and he talks about uh, how his cultural background has shaped his reading of Scripture. And uh, there was a phrase in his book early on that I underlined uh, because it's something I never wanted to forget. He said, perspective cannot be avoided when reading Scripture, and perspective should not be avoided. The Bible wasn't written to us. We're not the original recipients of of these great uh, books of law and poetry and, and gospel and letters. We're not the original recipients. We're not the church at Corinth. We're not the church at Thessalonica. We are the church at Bluntstown, you and, you and I. Uh, and so while Scripture wasn't written to us, it was written for our benefit. And it's important that we bring our perspective there, not to try to change the meaning, but to find meaning for where we are today. And so perspective should not be avoided. It cannot be avoided. So yeah, that's great insight, Mike. So for our next question, uh, Nick, it's not changing gears too much, but uh, where do you believe laity can be most effective? during the service, and why? Well, there are many roles in worship. Um, matter of fact, uh, the word liturgy means the work of the people. Um, in worship, we have to understand that uh, the congregation's not the audience, the spectators out there. It is God himself who is the audience. Uh, we are the worshipers. Even the worship team, they're not... Uh, um, the worship leaders, they're the lead worshipers. And so uh, we are here with an audience of one in mind, and that audience is God himself. And so God gathers us. We don't have to gather God. He, he gathers us into his presence. And so we are there to worship him. And so 
every part of worship is essential for us to be engaged because God wants all of us to be actively uh, together as a group of people. That's what the church is, these called out ones, the, the people together. And we, we don't pray, my Father in heaven, we pray our Father who art in heaven. And so in terms of a worship service, where do I see people at work? I see people at work praying. Again, we all have access to God. I love to see laity offer some of the prayers in service. I love to see uh, laity serve in various roles like uh, children as acolytes who are modeling the Christ follower to us, uh, as usher, as, uh, as greeter at the door, as reading scripture, as leading in music, as making announcements. Um, there are many ways for laity to be involved and they should be involved because the pastor is not the church, the people. That's the church. And we all have this relationship with God, and God wants all of our worship. You know, Rick Warren wrote this book years ago, uh, The Purpose Driven Life, and in the first chapter he says, it's not about you. Well, you know, yeah, in terms of worship, it's not about us. But from God's point of view, from God's perspective, it is about us. God wants us, and worship is the way that God wants us. And so um, I think laity are effective when they are used in many different capacities of worship, uh, even sharing the message at times, I think that's important. I think it's important for uh, laity to preach occasionally and for the congregation to hear that. That's great to hear. Uh, one of the aspirations that I've had in taking these courses has been to uh, fulfill some of those roles that not everybody wants to do. Um, pastors need a day off from time to time, and pastors are asked to preach at different places from time to time. The pastor is the lead uh, person in the church in, in helping us uh, stay grounded in, in our worship. But I think the, the lay folks in the church also are, are just as important because pastors come and go, but the people, for the most part, stay put in that particular congregation. So one of the aspirations I've had is to fill pulpits when, when the pastor is unable to be there or takes a day off. And in doing that, I've done that a couple of times. And, of course, you know that. You've asked me to do that a couple of times. And preparing for that service is a whole different ballgame. It's one thing to sit in the, in the pew and worship and, and be able to have your, let your mind wander and go to places that you want to go. You know, God's taking you to different places. You may hear the choir sing, but you may not hear the words the choir singing because you're worshiping in another way. You're praying at the time or what have you. But when you are up on stage and you're uh, a worship leader, uh, that's a little bit different. And you have to stay in the game, and, and your mind has to stay focused a little more. And I think letting laity see that helps for a more rounded congregation helps more helps people to understand that it's not just you get up in the morning you get dressed and you go sit down in the pew there's a lot of planning that goes in to a good worship service and a good worship service is one where the entire congregation in one accord is worshiping our god all at the same time that means everybody's focused on worshiping god and when you're able to get a congregation to do that, it's an awesome, awesome thing. And we've had those, uh, some of those Sundays uh, in the last few, few weeks. But that does bring up this point. There is a method to what we'll call the madness of a worship service. Uh, the United Methodists call it the basic pattern. And I'm sure you're familiar with that since you've been going through those, those classes with that. So first off, do you use 
the basic pattern of worship to plan your services? Yeah, Mike, that's great. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I got a book in the mail this week from uh, uh, Constance Cherry, uh, a companion to the great uh, worship architect book that she wrote on special services dealing with uh, weddings and funerals and uh, baptisms and so forth. But uh, uh, yeah, there's a there's a pattern that we see that is much older than than our uh, book of worship. It goes all the way back to the time of Scripture, particularly in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the story uh, where Jesus walks with the disciples to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus encounters some of his disciples. They don't recognize him, but he gathers them. And they begin to journey, and so that first component, that first uh, um, part of, of designing a worship service is the gathering. Um, this is the time where God's people come together. There may be a uh, prelude, um, the, the book of worship calls it the entrance. Um, for me, that, that term attaches the church a lot to the building. So I like the term gathering over entrance, but that's just personal preference because even at our Methodist roots, Wesley had a lot of outdoor meetings. And so we understand the church to be the, the body of Christ, not a building. Uh, so when God's people gather, Jesus said, I'm there with them, and he gathers us in his presence and, uh, and that's that first part where we, we offer prayers and greetings and uh, opening words. And there's a call to worship. And we begin to sing and um, we begin to center ourselves in God. And so that, that's that element of, of gathering. And then the next part, back to that story with Emmaus, not only is Jesus gathered with his disciples, but he begins to teach them and talk to them. And that's that part of proclamation. And this is going back to your first question about the role of Scripture. We start with Scripture, and then there's a, an explanation and application of that Scripture. Uh, and so this is the opportunity we have to hear from God and to begin to, to do some introspection in our own lives. Uh, Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. That's kind of the process that we're going through there. And we're, we're doing a spiritual checkup and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak. And we're completely opening up our hearts in our lives to God. But with the proclamation, there should always be a response. And that response on our part, unfortunately sometimes, is people walk away and do nothing. But a good response is to affirm our faith, to recommit our lives, to make a decision to follow Christ, to um, respond with uh, holy communion, that's a great response, and that's the next component that you see in that story in Luke's gospel as Jesus is in the room with those disciples, and he breaks bread, and then they have that aha moment, that epiphany, where they realize this is the Lord. And then from there, you see this, this fourth, or, or fourth movement component where they're sent out. So the church gather, gathered becomes the church scattered in the world. And there's two components to that. There's a charge. Here is your mission, your marching orders. And here's a blessing to go with you. That's what Jesus did in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. He said, All powers given to me in heaven and earth. Go, here's his charge, go therefore and teach all nations. And then the commission to baptize and make disciples. But then here's his blessing. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the earth. And so we use a lot of blessings that we find through Scripture. The pastor or minister uh, that day may be 
writing their own blessing, but, but we're sent out with a mission and with the blessing of Almighty God. And so, yeah, that's that, f- that fourfold component there, the, the gathering, the proclamation, uh, and response, holy communion, and, and the sending forth. And so, yeah, I, I, I do think of that. Even when I'm planning a funeral or a wedding, I'm using those, those major components when I'm structuring a service. Those are great points, and, and we need to remember that in the basic pattern, uh, when we gather and then we hear the Word and, and we consume the Word and God's talking to us, we also need that communion with God, and we need that on a regular basis because during a, during a good, solid, proper communion service, Jesus is there. He is actually with you, walking through that service with you, having the meal with you. It's God's gift. We could not do that without God inviting us to his table. Obviously, we're not worthy, but that's because we are sinners. But God broke that down through Jesus Christ and said, I want you at my table. Please come to my table. And so that communion service along with the gathering and the word and the sending forth thereafter, Jesus is present. He's there. So that makes it that much more important that we do the communion service correctly. And I don't mean methodically. I mean with the right mindset. And we get into that right mindset as the word is being spoken, being, uh, we're being taught what it is we are to do. Jesus enters. He's here. He's with us. God is the one that we're, we're worshiping at the time. All the time is the one we're worshiping. But this is a long-winded statement to say communion is important in the entire basic pattern of worship. Some churches do that on a quarterly basis, and I know that that comes from history where we had the the preachers who could only get to churches maybe once a quarter because there just wasn't enough of them. And even today, we're finding that we're having trouble getting pastors to stay in pulpits. We're having churches that need pastors to, to be there to do the communion service. So they either do it once a month, once a quarter, uh, once a week just tends to not be a, a viable option. What do you think about communion and how often it should be done in your in your mind? Yeah, Mike, um, and this is a question I, that I get a lot from people. Um, and one of the questions that's raised, if we do communion too much, if there is such a thing, will it lessen its meaning and become just routine, just ritual, and lose its richness. So one side says, let's let's not do it too often. That way it, it, it stands to be more meaningful. But that was not the position of John and Charles Wesley. The Wesleys had the position that the grace of God is extended to us through the sacrament. We should do it often. And Scripture never specifies. It just says how in the, in the oldest document that we have in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, uh, related to communion, Paul says, as often as you shall. And so each church has determined for themselves what what that means, and each minister has. Um, For me, I came out of a tradition, you mentioned the Baptist church, we celebrated communion quarterly, so four times a year we celebrated communion. And uh, in some of the churches I had served, been a part of, I remember for me it was always a sad experience. It was a memorial. We're doing this in obedience 
That's that ordinance view that came from Zwingli. We're doing this to obey the command of Jesus, and, and you're sitting there thinking about the death of Christ the whole time, and it's just really sad. And I remember being a teenager just crying at communion, thinking, oh, Jesus had to die for me, and it just being a sad, somber occasion. That's one way of looking at communion. But another way of looking at communion is to see it as a celebration. That's why in the Book of Common Prayer that our Episcopal brothers and sisters use, they refer to the minister celebrating as the celebrant. We celebrate Holy Communion. It's not simply a memorial. That's part of it, the remembrance part. But we are victorious because we know the rest of the story. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And so we've been invited to this wonderful meal by Jesus who wants to include us. And in this uh, meal, we have the opportunity to confess our sins, to receive pardon, uh, almost like a a rededication of our lives, if you will. Uh, I was in a a service uh, at Asbury Seminary uh, several years ago, and Dr. Paul Chilcote was leading communion. He had served as a missionary in Africa, and he served communion to us as we were leaving the chapel. And that's the way they did it in the particular area of Africa that he was in. It was food for the journey. What a great way to look at it. Here's nourishment for our souls, food for our journey as we go out into the world to be the people of Christ, to be the body of Christ. And so for me, I can only speak from my experience and that is by celebrating communion more often. And our church celebrates communion roughly about 14 times a year. It has enriched me. It has grown me. It has deepened my faith. It's deepened my appreciation for, for Holy Communion. And, and it has not become mundane or just a ritual or something we do or something that's tagged on to the end of the service. Rather, it's something I look forward to and I long to. I almost feel like I'm getting just a hit the restart button and just start over in my journey and just get a fresh experience of God's mercy and grace in my life. And so that was the perspective of the Wesley brothers. And so they celebrated communion regularly. And during that time, the Anglican church did not. And the irony is now the people called Methodists usually celebrate communion about once a month in most churches, whereas the Anglicans now celebrate it weekly. So they called on to what Wesley was doing. You bring up some vivid imagery of uh, going forth into the battlefield, into the mission field, in that food for your mission. I know someone in our church just recently said they wished they could hang a banner over the door as we were walking out that says, you're entering the mission field. Go forth. Um, that, that's a wonderful thought. Hadn't thought of it that way. That, that's absolutely marvelous. Um, so one last question, and we've had some really good discussion here today. Um, if you were able to start a church from scratch, how would you utilize laity to provide your ideal worship service? Yeah, that's a good one. Starting a church from scratch, I'd need people from scratch. <laughs> uh, there was an old preacher joke where I, I've heard some ministers say, you know, church would be a lot easier without the people. And, and we have experienced that during this pandemic. Um, relationships and dealing with people, it's messy work, but it's the work God has called us to. Christ came to save people, to redeem humanity. And all people 
all backgrounds, all genders, all races. There's a diversity that God has made to bring us together in a miraculous way to make us one. And so if I'm starting a church from scratch, I want to look at who the people are that I'm beginning that church with and have a time of discernment with them for them to assess themselves and for me to look into their lives to determine what their spiritual gifts and graces are. Because we don't all have the same gifts. Some of us have gifts as teachers and preachers. Some of us can sing. Some of us have the gift of hospitality. Uh, we're, we're, we're wired differently. and God made us the way we are. And the Holy Spirit has given to each of us at least one spiritual gift. And we don't all have them all. We work better when we work together and we need each other. Um, I would utilize laity by placing people in those areas that match their gifts. So a person who has the gift of hospitality obviously would be uh, greeting people, uh, welcoming newcomers. Uh, they would be engaged in fellowship meals. A person with the gift of music would be leading uh, us in music. You certainly wouldn't want me doing that. That's not my area of giftedness. Uh, a person uh, who just has the gift of servants, they would be you know, getting the sanctuary ready or the place of worship ready. And so I would fit people where their 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 gifts and I would I would match needs and gifts. That would be my goal. And that's my goal every year through our nominations process in the church is to say who is best suited for this area. Uh, um, so in the actual worship event, I would try to fit people where they are, and I would be looking for people who are comfortable getting up and reading the scripture and developing a rotation of different laity, fresh voices and faces. Uh, to read the scripture. I'd be looking for people to help me with communion and serve in that process. I want to incorporate children. And Jesus lifted kids up while others were shunning them. He lifted them up and he pointed to them as an example for us all and said, don't rebuke them. Don't resist them. Such is the kingdom of God. How do I incorporate kids in service? If you notice, I, I like to use kids to assist me with communion. And I remember uh, uh, someone joining our church and they they. They were a little bit bothered by that. They said, I don't think children should be involved in communion, something so serious. They came from another denomination. And I said, I think it's the opposite. I think they're the example to serve communion. We need to incorporate uh, children in worship. They're, they're not the future of the church. They're the church now. So we need to involve them. And so I want to involve all ages, all backgrounds, uh, men and women, I want, I want women and men to serve as ushers in the church, as greeters, uh, as scripture readers uh, in every, every capacity possible. And so that, that's how I would, I would include them. I would include everybody. Suffice it to say that a working church is a growing church. When people are involved in the church, your church continues to grow, not in just number, but in, in, in the worship process and, and grow in, in spiritually. Each individual person grows spiritually, and then we all grow together spiritually. And using each other's talents to help do that is, is, is where it's at. It's, it's amazing feat to get people to do that. Uh, sometimes you have to convince them that they have a, a gift that they want to deny that they have. Um, I know we've, we've, uh, I've gone through that myself. Uh, but it is certainly great to see a worship service where the entire congregation is a part of it they all have a piece of it 
and we leave there that much more ready to go into God's mission field. Nick, I thank you so much for the time you've, you've given me today. Uh, this has been enlightening. Uh, I hope those out here that, out there that hear this podcast, that they get something out of it and understand that at least us here in Bluntstown United Methodist Church are looking to, to worship God to the best that we can and use everybody's talents in doing that.